Good morning. Um, our, that, that time of worship uh, was really, really sweet for me, and I'm, I'm, uh, I guess one of the benefits of being able to pick the order of the songs we do and preaching is that I know what song we're going to sing right before we preach. And so, um, I, I, you know, that last song we sang, Lord, I Need You, I think is very applicable um, to all of us, no, no matter what situation we're in, whether it's, um, you know, the, the death of a loved one, whether it be just get, going through hard times in life, whether it be um, just standing up here and, and preaching through the Word of God, we, we need the Lord. And so let me open us up with a word of prayer, and, and then we'll get into uh, the sermon here. Uh, God, I do pray as we come now uh, that, that your Word would, be, um, would give us life, um, that we would understand um, more about you and more about ourselves. And God, I pray that you would, um, you would change us uh, during this time as we preach. So give me the words to say, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech uh, that I could um, speak truth um, as, as I'm seeking to explain your word here this morning. So God, would you do that in Jesus' name, amen. So I've uh, titled the sermon, Unwavering Faith, um, because really I think that's something that if I were to ask any of you, you would say, I want that. I want unwavering faith. I want a faith that is strong, not a faith that is weak. And that's what's being talked about here in Romans 4. We'll get to it, especially towards the end of the chapter, uh, but we can't go right there. We've got to kind of build up to that and work towards that. We've got to understand the context of what's going on here before we, we go directly to that part of Romans 4. And I think it's important for us to remember as we read the Bible that the Bible is not a string of pearls, that we don't just read a little bit and then we find a verse and think, oh, that's a really good one. I like that one. Let me go put that on a bumper sticker and put it on my car. We read a little bit more and find another verse. We think, oh, yeah, now that's, that's a good one too. That, that's not the way the Bible works. It's not a string of pearls in that way. Rather, it's a chain of unlinked thoughts that are all, or sorry, not unlinked, linked thoughts that all work together to tell a story. Um, and so that's what the Bible is here, and that's, that's what's going on here um, is this chapter is Paul is putting these thoughts together, he's linking them together to help us understand what is faith really. Now, a lot of the content from this message that I'm going to give this morning comes from a sermon I heard a few weeks back um, from J.D. Greer, who's the, he's the president of a Southern Baptist Convention right now. He pastors a church in Raleigh, North Carolina uh, called the Summit Church. And throughout the course of this year, he's been teaching through the book of Romans. Um, and so um, I, I heard this sermon a few weeks back. It's when he preached back in March. And I thought that was, that was really, there were a lot of good things in there. I love a lot of what is being talked about here in Romans 4. There's a lot of verses in here that are some of my favorite when you understand them in the context of what is being said here. And so I thought when I had the opportunity to preach, it'd just be easy to go ahead and, and just preach on that. So that's what I'm going to be, um, be sharing from. And we are going to pick up in verse 11, which is what was just read. But before we do that, I want to give a little bit of a background for what's been going on in the book of Romans up to this point. Because we're, you know, here at this church, we've been studying through the book of John. This is just kind of a, an inserted sermon so that Clint can have a, a break for a family vacation. Um, and so it just, I'll, I'll give you guys a little context so you know where we are um, in the book of Romans. So in chapter 1, um, that's really where Paul is explaining the message of the gospel. He explains his desire to share it with the Romans. And he goes on to talk about how all mankind has a problem that we all have a deep inner rebellion that corrupts every one of our relationships. 
Then in chapter 2, he really starts to, he anticipates an objection that the religious people would have, particularly the religious, religious Jews who would say, yeah, yeah, though, you know, I hear you about the sin problem. Those Gentiles, those pagans out there, you know, they, they're really messed up. We're not the ones that are messed up. We were raised on religion. We've got the word of God. We've got the heroes of faith. We've got the temple. We're different than them. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you, you're just as bad off as they are. And then in chapter 3, he really takes an entire chapter to show that religion does not fix your problem. And, and in fact, in many ways, religion makes your problem worse. And, and the end of chapter 3, really starting in verse 21, is, is maybe, I would definitely say it's the most important paragraph in all of Romans. It may be the most important paragraph in all of the Bible, where he is explaining that righteousness is revealed apart from the law in the person of Jesus Christ. And he talks about how that offer is for all people, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. So that's where we are up to this point when we get to chapter four. And what he's starting to do at the start of chapter four is he's trying to figure out, okay, if that's true, if that message is true for all people, what was the point of Abraham then? What, what was the deal with his faith? And what does that mean for us today? And so he's really starting to get at, as I said, the true essence of faith and what that means for us today. And so I want you to, you know, be asking, you know, what, what is faith? Is it praying a prayer? Is it feeling a certain way? Is it a commitment to Jesus? I think those are some of the things that we'll look at here and we'll get answered as we look at Romans 4. And so ask also, as you look at Abraham's faith, ask these questions. When did Abraham believe? How did Abraham believe, and what did Abraham believe? Look, look for those things as we're talking about that this morning. So we'll start, we'll pick up in verse 11, which was just read, where Paul is in the middle of an argument, and he's basically talking about this, the sign of circumcision, which was an outward act that came after Abraham was made righteous. And so what he's saying here is that righteousness came to Abraham by faith not by Abraham doing something. And so we see in verse 11 where it says the righteousness would be counted to them as well. That righteousness that came by faith would be counted to them as well. What Paul is saying here is in the same way that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness before the law, others who, have, who believe will have their faith counted to them as righteousness as well. And so before we go a little bit further, I want to just pause for a second and look at that phrase, counted to him as righteousness. It's a very important phrase that's really referenced a bunch of different times here um, in, this, in this chapter of the book of Romans. And I think if we really understand this phrase, if we understand what is meant here, then we can really begin to understand the essence of faith. There are two words in that phrase that I want us to look at and think about what they mean a little more deeply. The first word is righteousness. So again, counted to him as righteousness. That word righteousness is a word that simply put, there's a lot of different ways you could describe it, but simply put, it just means acceptable to God. So what's being said here in this, in this chapter here, in this verse here, is that Abraham is acceptable to God. And I think when we see that, we should then hear that and think, well, I want to be acceptable to God. 
That, that seems like a good thing to be able to stand before God and be accepted. So what did Abraham do? What, how was he acceptable to God? What, what was it about him that made him acceptable to God? And, and we'll get into that. The other word that I want us to look at here is the word, for, is the word counted. Uh, so again, this word, is, the Greek word is a word that's called logizomai, is, is the, the word there. And it is used actually 10 times throughout this chapter of Romans. So it seems like this is a word that is very important to Paul. It's something that he really wants us to get a hold of and understand this idea of counted. Sometimes it's used in the idea of counted as righteousness, which we just saw in, you know, in this verse here. In fact, that's the majority of the times it's used. It's also used to say that, you know, those who are righteous, their, their sin will not be counted against them. And so that word, legizomai, is actually a banking term, and it means just that. It means to count or to reckon. Now, I don't mean, I know we're in the South, this is not the Southern form of the word to reckon, uh, where I reckon he did this, I reckon he did this. It's not that. Um, but, and the reason that this is different is because this word is actually based upon facts, and not upon suppositions. So it is a very factual term. And, and as I said, it's a, a banking term. So to give you a real life example of how this would be used in that day, um, it would be this way, that if I wanted to transfer money into somebody else's account, that I would go to the banker um, and I would say, you know, I want you to, to give this person this money and the banker would then credit or logizomai the other person's account with the, whatever amount I had said to so that that person could then use that money now. They could use that money for whatever they needed because it would then be their money. So that's what Paul is saying happened to Abraham when he believed God, that God credited his account with righteousness that he was now seen as acceptable to God because God credited him because of his faith. So it was the faith that led to that. And we, we originally see that phrase actually in Genesis 15, 6, which is um, the story of God giving a promise to Abraham and where we see that uh, God gave the promise and after that promise was given, the promise was that Abraham would be the father of many nations. So uh, God gave that promise and Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. That's what is said in, verse, in Genesis 15, 6, and that's what Paul is reminding us here about here in Romans 4, and he's making the point, again, I'm going to keep reiterating this. You're going to see the theme that it was Abraham's faith, it was his belief that resulted in righteousness being credited to his account. It was not his act of circumcision that made him righteous. And that is true for all who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's what verse 12 says. So the, the circumcision came later, the faith and the righteousness came first. We'll move on to verse 13 where Paul says that the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that, that promise that he would be the heir of the world, that did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith is what verse 13 says. There are just a few things that I want us to point out here um, about this verse. First of all, I think we should note that there is a promise here that plays a really big part in the faith of Abraham. You know, if you look back at Genesis 15, which we referenced earlier, we learn that, again, this is the promise that Abraham would have many offspring 
And that's the promise again that is referenced here. And it was belief in that promise and the promise that was given. And that's the promise that was referenced here. It was that belief that led to righteousness being credited to Abraham's account. We're going to get more into that promise a little bit later on, but I just want to point it out here. The promise plays a central role in the faith of Abraham. The second thing to point out here that I think is very interesting is that that verse, that in the verse that Paul says that the promise was given to Abraham and his offspring. If you look back at Genesis 15, nobody's there except Abraham when God gives the promise. There are no other people there. And so it's interesting that Paul would say that that promise was made not just to Abraham, but it was made to his offspring. And again, we'll see how that comes into play a little bit later on. And then the last thing to point out here, which is very clear in this verse, is that the promise did not come through the law. So one of the things, again, as, as, we were, as I was introing this to say that you should look out for is when Abraham believed. And we see here that the promise and therefore his faith and righteousness came before the law, which tells us, yes, that just that, that his righteousness comes before the law. And so the, where that has significance for us is that we can then realize that we can be acceptable to God apart from obedience to the law. That's what Paul's teaching us here in Romans 4 and using the example of Abraham to show us that. So he goes on in verse 14 to continue to build upon that and say that if adherence to the law, if those that obeyed the law, if they were the ones that were going to be Abraham's heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. He's saying if you could just obey and that would be enough to make you righteous, if that would be enough to make you acceptable to God, then, then what's the point of faith? Why would God have even given that promise if there was another way? If you, if you look up in your Bible back to verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4 of Romans, those verses say this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, listen to this part, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So do you catch that? To the one who does not work, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. This is very, very good news for us. Abraham did not have to work to be acceptable to God, and, and neither do we. You know, I told us again to look out for not just when Abraham believed, but how he believed. And we see here that he believes not by working, but by believing. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's who is considered righteous. So it's by belief and belief alone that we are made acceptable to God. But, but why would that be so? What, what's the point of the law then? What, you know, what, what are, what's the point of that? I think Paul anticipates that people would kind of ask that question and Paul would, would, would raise that. And so he goes right into verse 15 and starts to answer that question. And he says this, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So we see this idea that the law shows us our sin. It shows us our need for a savior. It is, it is not meant to be our savior. It was never meant to be our savior. It's not the means by which we're made acceptable to God. 
And that's, that's what the phrase, where there is no law, there is no transgression means. You know, if it were not for the law, then we wouldn't be able to really know ourselves to be sinners. And so just as we read earlier from the New City Catechism that was up on the screen, the purpose of the law is to do just that. It is, yes, to show us the holiness of God, but it's also to show us our sinful nature and our need for a Savior. Paul, just a couple verses or couple chapters, excuse me, later than this, in chapter 7, he reiterates this again when he talks about sin coming alive after the commandment came. So he's basically saying, I didn't really know myself to be one who would covet, but then when I read the law, thou shalt not covet, I realized, oh, wow, I really am one that covets. So it's that idea that the commandment makes the sin come alive in you. Not that we were not sinners until we had the law and then we became sinners, but the law helped show us how big of sinners we really are and how much of need of grace we truly are. Again, another point in one of Paul's letters, Galatians chapter 3, verse 12, where he reiterates the same concept, and he says, the law is not of faith. So again, the law was never intended to be a means of our salvation. That's made clear here in this chapter and in other places all throughout Scripture. That is not the purpose of the law. And so Abraham, and as to, to bring us back to what's being talked about here in chapter 4, Abraham was righteous before the law. And the same is true for us. We can be righteous apart from the law, not by adhering to the law. So if we move on through our passage again, we move down to to verse 16 where, where Paul is again saying that it depends on faith. Hopefully you see this common theme over and over again. It depends on faith and the promise rests on grace. You know, we already referenced just a little bit ago that it's not by working for salvation that he was righteous, but by believing. And again, he's saying it over and over again. It all rests on grace. Now, we should ask the question, what does it mean if we want to know what rests on grace? Um, I think I would sum it up this way. I've heard it summed up this way before, that um, the it that depends on faith is the righteousness of God that obtains the promise for us. Uh, That's what is by faith. So if we want to know what our faith should lead to, it will lead to the righteousness of God that obtains the promise. Again, there's that reference to promise. We'll talk about it a little bit more um, in a few minutes. So that righteousness rests on grace, and it's guaranteed to his offspring. So again, this starts to get a little further into the answer of the question of how did Abraham believe that he was given a promise by God And that promise was that God would make him the father of many nations. It would first happen through Abraham or through God giving Abraham a son. And then ultimately through that line, God would provide a redeemer um, in Jesus Christ. Um, And that's uh, and so that those who believed in the same way that Abraham believed, those are the ones that would be Abraham's offspring. So the promise that was made to Abraham can also be guaranteed to those who share in the faith of Abraham. God's promise to Abraham when he received it, he was looking forward. And as his heirs, our belief in the promise is looking back at how God fulfilled that promise to Abraham ultimately through Jesus Christ. But either way, We're trusting that faith in God's promise is what secures for us the righteousness of God. I love the phrase here in this verse that says it's guaranteed to those who share the faith of Abraham. 
And so we've been, we've been talking about this a little bit already, and, and really I think we should, when we see that, we should ask ourselves a question of what did Abraham's faith look like? You know, if, if we want this, uh, this righteousness to be guaranteed to us, and we know that it can be guaranteed if we share the faith of Abraham, what did Abraham's faith look like? What, what was his faith made up of? You know, some of the things we've seen already where he believed apart from the law, we see where he believed not by working for his salvation, but by trusting. And we see some more elements of his faith in these verses that follow. So if you look at verse 18, he believed against hope. This was an element of Abraham's faith, that he believed against hope when everything in the world told him that he would not be a father. He believed that God would hold true to his promise. He was holding on to that promise that God would fulfill his promise, that God would make him the father of many nations. And that's why verse 21 says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. He didn't just have a general sense of belief in God, but we, he was holding on to a very specific promise and saying, this is what I'm holding on to. And it was his holding on to that that made him righteous. You know, I, I talked about it a minute ago, but that promise was that ultimately God would provide a redeemer through Abraham. And Paul draws a connection to us in verses 23 and 24, if you look down there, um, where he has just kind of said that Abraham believed a promise and that's why his faith was counted as righteousness. And then he says that those words were not written for his sake, for Abraham's sake, but they were written for our sake. So very similar to what we saw previously in verse 16, uh, where it applies to those who share the faith of Abraham, we see in verses 24 and 25 that righteousness, in the same way that it was counted to Abraham, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our, our justification. So it's not just this general sense of God that we must believe in. But it's a very specific thing about God and about what he's done that righteousness depends on. Again, I've said this already, but Abraham believed in the promise looking forward. We're called to believe in the fulfillment of that promise uh, in that same way, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I hope you, you understand that and pick up on what Paul is saying here. What I'm trying to explain here is that the people in the Old Testament were saved just like you and me. They looked forward to the cross. We look backwards at the cross. The direction is different, but the object of our faith is the same. And that same object of, our, of faith is what our righteousness depends on. You know, a few weeks back, we went out um, to, uh, to Georgia Tech. Uh, it's something we've been doing that, um, that Greg has kind of organized for us to, uh, to practice sharing our faith, to practice explaining the message of the Bible to people in hopes that it will become more of a regular part of our lives, that as we're talking with people, we'll be able to be comfortable with talking to, to others and explaining um, the message of, of the gospel. And so we went out a few weeks ago um, and I went out with, with David Thompson when we were going around and we met a student. Um, and the method that we used at this time to kind of um, talk to them about the gospel, as we said, we're out here on the campus and uh, we're, we're just kind of asking some people questions about the, the, the big questions in life and just trying to see what people think about some, some important things in this world. 
And so there's, you know, a few questions you go through. It's, there's one that's, you know, what are three words you would use to describe yourself? Um, what the, another one is, uh, what, before you die, what's something that you want to make sure that you accomplish? And um, when we get to the third question, um, we're, we're talking to, to a student there, and the third question is, what happens when you die? And his answer, uh, it was either right around there or before there, I can't remember exactly, but his answer, or he had told us that he was a Christian. Um, he, he had said that to us. And so um, we, when David asked that question to him, his answer was, well, you go to heaven. And so David pushed him a little bit further and said, well, what, what do you mean? Does everybody go to heaven? Um, and he said, well, no, not, not everyone. And so who does? Um, I guess the, those that believe in God or have faith in God. And we, we continue to just kind of ask questions and go back and forth, just kind of asking him to clarify what he meant by certain things. And, uh, you know, all throughout that, there was no mention of Jesus. And so eventually, uh, David asked him, he said, so you, you said you're a Christian, but I'm just curious, how does Jesus fit into your answer? Um, and he, he really didn't have a great answer for that, uh, because it really what it came down to was he really believed that kind of whatever you believed and whatever worked for you, that was, that was good enough for you. And so if, if I had to, again, I'm, I'm not God, so I do not know that man's soul for sure, but just based on the answers he was giving there, I would say, I don't know that he shared in the faith of Abraham. I don't know that he was looking for a, to the promise. He was not looking to the fulfilled promise as his only hope for righteousness. He wasn't believing what Paul wrote here, that Jesus was delivered up for his trespasses, and that belief in that truth is the only way that one can be counted as righteous, the only way that one can be approved before God. And I think it's critical for us as Christians, if we're going to stay true to what Paul has written here, is that we understand that true faith is based on this faith, is based on this truth here, that Jesus died for our trespasses and was raised by God. And I think when we arrange our lives around that truth and that truth alone, it's credited to us as righteousness. In verse 19, we see another element of his faith, where we see that he did not weaken in his faith when he looked at his body. He didn't think that God would be limited by the state of his body. He didn't try to think, okay, I know that God said I'm going to be a father. I don't really see that happening. So let me go look up and, and see what I can do. Let me go try to kind of figure this out. Let me go do my part to make sure that God has everything he needs from me in order to make this promise happen. And you know that's what we would do if we were in that situation. We would, in this day and age, we would go right to the internet. We would search something on Google. What doctor can I talk to to make sure that I can have a baby when I'm 90-some years old? We would be doing that to try to figure this out. But that's not, according to this verse here, not what Abraham did. He believed that God could do the work and that he didn't need, God didn't need any help from Abraham to fulfill it. And that's just such a hard thing for us to do. We, we tend to hedge our bets, so to speak, when it comes to our faith. We, we tend to want to trust God, but also let me make sure I'm doing my part. Let, let me make sure I've got my things in order so just in case God fails, I'll, I'll be okay. It's been described by some as, as what's called mutual fund faith. You know, if, you're, if you know the stock market at all, you know that, you know, mutual fund is kind of a way of spreading out your investment risk. It's, you know, a really big fund where there are lots of people that are contributing, lots of different companies there. So kind of if one fa fails, everything's okay. The risk is mitigated. And, and we live that way in our faith too. We think, 
You know, in God, if God fails me, at least I've got these other things. Let me make sure I've got these other things set up so that if God fails, I can still be okay. So we, we hedge our bets that way. One, another way that we kind of hedge our bets is we refuse to fully obey God. We, we want to do things our way, but we're, we're not confident in him to go all the way with what he would say. We'll do what he asks as long as we can stay comfortable. But we're not confident enough that if we do obey, if we obey to the point where we would become uncomfortable, we're just not that confident that God would ultimately be our, com our comfort. So we don't fully obey. We, we hedge our bets in that way. You may, another way this may manifest itself, you may talk to a couple um, who maybe they're, they're not married, but they're, they're living together. And maybe they'll come and they'll say something like, you know, do you think God will punish us for living this way? And, and really, people that would ask questions like that um, are in a place where they're afraid of the punishment of God, but they're not willing to submit to the wisdom of God. And I don't think that's true faith. True faith is not just afraid of God's punishment, but it is willing to submit to what he would say is wise and good for you. You know, if God is God and he has the authority to punish you, then don't you think faith would submit to his wisdom before subjecting yourself to the punishment that he may bring? Another way that we, we hedge our bets is by our unwillingness to submit to God and to take small steps of faith because it doesn't look like they will pay off in our eyes. You know, we expect our steps of faith to result in some amazing, life-changing moment. And when we can't see that, we don't believe something will lead to that, I think that we're unwilling to then take that step of faith. So, so let me say it this way. That we offer a, a lot of opportunities here at this church, whether that be uh, coming here on Sunday mornings, whether that be our Wednesday night services when we have those, our men's and women's group, going to share our faith at Georgia Tech. We have our uh, prayer time and our uh, Sunday school on Sunday mornings. We have all these opportunities for you to, um, to grow in your walk with God, to take steps of faith. And if I'm honest with you guys, I don't tend to approach those events and say, you know, if I go to this thing tonight, if I go do this, God's going to do something amazing that will change me forever. Now, I, God could, he could do that. I don't want to disc discount that or discredit that. He very well may do something amazing in a small step of faith. But the chances are, from what I've kind of seen from experience and, um, and, and what I've just kind of lived and seen in others' lives is that that's often not the primary way that he works. So how, instead of approaching it that way, what I tend to do is approach things this way, is think that here's another opportunity for me to be around the people of God, for me to be around the word of God, another opportunity for me to take a small step of faith and potentially be stretched in my faith. And I don't know that something big is gonna happen through this one event, through doing this one little thing, but I'm gonna trust that I'll look back 5, 10, 15 years from now and think, I'm glad I did that. God really used all those little things and, and, and things that I did in my life in a way that I had no idea about at the time. And so when I think that way, I'm more willing to say, you know what, I, I'm, it's, I've got some work to do, but I, let me just try to do that in the morning and go take advantage of this opportunity. You know, it's, it's crazy getting the kids out of the house and going through all this and trying just to come for a Wednesday night, you know, 30 minutes of a Bible study. 
But I want to say, you know, it's worth it for that because God may use that little small step of faith years down the road to do something amazing. We just, we live in this instant gratification culture that it's so easy for our faith to fall victim to that same thing, that same way of thinking. And we end up becoming worldly in our faith. We, you know, we end up saying, like I said, that faith, that, you know, that step of faith, it probably won't change me in a massive way, so I'm not going to take that, that step of faith. I'll wait for another one to come along. That, that's going to be the real one. That's going to be the, the big one. And, and I imagine that Abraham had that same struggle a little bit, because it was years and years after God gave him this promise before he was actually blessed with the child, before he actually saw that promise fulfilled, and so you just can imagine that every day he's just kind of getting up and going through his routine and doing what, you know, what he needs to do and, and saying, God, I, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I just trust that eventually you're going to provide, that eventually you're going to fulfill your promise. So it was all just those little things with, the ex, with that expectation that kept him going. And eventually it led to the point where years down the road, after Isaac was born, God asked him, I need you to sacrifice your son. And the way the story reads in the Bible is that Abraham didn't push back against that, that he was willing to go and sacrifice his son. And I don't think that that was just that one moment that God gave Abraham that faith to do that. I think it was a culmination of years and years of, God, I believe you're going to do this. I really think you're going to do it. Just the every day, the small little things so it's those small steps of obedience that led to that point. It wasn't that one big step. And that's the way I think faith works. It's small deposits that slowly over time will grow us and mature us. So don't hedge your bets and think that there's another way. Don't, don't try to say, well, I'm not going to go all in on my faith now because I'm going to wait for something else. Or that's a little bit difficult. That might be a little more uncomfortable but trust now that God will provide for you even in the small things and that over time he will grow you so that that will result in big things in your life. Now I'm going to finish our time by briefly going back to verses 18, 19, and 20 where Paul uses words like believing against hope, not weakening in his faith, and not wavering due to unbelief. That's, that's where I started us saying that we were going to get here eventually. But if you know the story of Abraham... You may be asking, how could Paul say something like this? If you look back in Genesis, there are plenty of cases, there are two very clear cases where Paul lied to someone else and said that his wife was actually his sister, and he did that um, to preserve himself. So he clearly lied. That doesn't sound like somebody that's not wavering in their faith. He also, um, he went, even after this promise was given, he went and ended up having a child with his uh, wife's servant. Again, that does not sound like somebody who's strong in their faith, who doesn't waver in their faith. So did Paul forget about that when he was writing this? What was he getting at? Because it sure looked like he wavered. It sure looked like he had weak faith. And I think this is why Paul said it is that he understood this. He understood that unwavering faith doesn't mean that you don't fall. There's a verse in Proverbs 24, it's verse 16, that says, the righteous man falls seven times. You catch that? Seven times the righteous man falls. 
So that's like me being up here. I know I don't move around a whole lot when, when I do preach, but that would be like me being up here and moving around and all of a sudden just fall over here. And you guys would kind of be like, all right, that was a little weird. You'd probably laugh. Like my, I know Mike would laugh at me. Um, you guys would probably laugh. Um, and then, but you know, it'd be okay. But let's say that I did that again and again and again. And seven times while I was up here, I fell over and over again. Eventually, you would say, something's wrong there. Something's wrong with that person, with me. But the reality is of what that verse in Proverbs is saying is that that's our lives. As righteous people, we fall over and over and over again. In, in the Bible, when you say something happens seven times, that's like saying it happens constantly. So that's what our faith looks like over and over and over again. And so unwavering righteous faith is not without mistakes. The difference is made by where you look after you fall. How do you respond to that? So if you fall over and over and over again, but you get up and you look to Jesus, that's an aspect, or that shows you to have unwavering faith. If you look to him, if you remember what he did for you, if you ask forgiveness, if you bask in the love that he has for you, then you will have faith like Abraham, faith that is unwavering. Now, I do hope that that is comforting to you because it sure is comforting to me to know that you don't have to have unflinching faith to walk with God. Now, it doesn't mean that you just have license to go sin and say, well, look, you know, the righteous person falls seven times, so let me just go sin and who cares? Um, because that's not what is talked about here. Um, we, we saw, as I've referenced back to Abraham, you know, he, he made that, he fell when he decided he wanted to have a child with his wife's servant to try to help God fulfill the promise. But when he realized he was wrong, he turned from that. He showed faith and so that he was unwavering in his faith so that as I talked about later, when it came to the point where uh, God asked him to kill his son, he was willing to take that step of faith because after he fell the first time, he turned back to God and turned back to his promise. So it's, it's when we fall, you know, it's knowing that you're gonna sin and it's responding to that sin, not by being defensive, not by denying your sin, not by neglecting it, but by taking it to Jesus, by looking there and saying, what is it about this sin that is making me think that doing this is more fulfilling than what Christ offers me on the cross? It's, it's really looking at your heart by acknowledging that, thinking through that, asking forgiveness and praying and asking God by his grace to help you lay that sin aside, to turn from that and run back to him. So take heart because it doesn't take perfection in order to be acceptable to God. Just like Abraham, it takes a trust that God fulfilled his promise to send a redeemer. You know, and really in response to this sermon, there are two categories of people that we can look at. There are those who trust in the redeemer and trust uh, that he took away their sin. And for those, it has been counted as righteousness. And then the second are those that do not trust in the Redeemer and those that are not counted as righteousness. So I ask you, which one are you in? You know, the way the Bible talks about faith and talks about um, that trust is, a, is like a trust transfer. It's one thing to, you know, have a stool up here and for me to say, yes, I believe that stool will hold me up. But it's another thing for me to go and sit 
on that stool and to show that I have transferred my trust there. And that's what faith is. So if you've never done that, I would ask you that, will you consider that today? Will you consider putting your faith, your trust in the death of Jesus Christ? That when he went to the cross, he took the sin that you and the punishment for that sin that you deserved so that you could go free, so that you could have your account credited, logizomai, with righteousness, so that you could have the righteousness of God. Will you trust in that today? And if you have done that, I just ask this question. Does your life reflect that? Do you continue to live that out in your day-to-day decisions? Do you continue to live that out in a way that when you do fall, that you continue to place your trust in Christ? You continue to look to Him and not to yourself. Really, it makes no sense to trust the eternity of your soul to God by belief in Him and His fulfilled promise, but then to not submit to Him in your day-to-day decisions. So I ask that God would help us all with that as we close in prayer. God, um, this is not something to be taken lightly. Um, Our eternities are at stake here. So God, I pray that you would give us understanding of the message of the gospel, that you would show us more clearly as you've shown us through Abraham what it looks like to trust in you, to hold on to your promise. And God, that through that, we would be counted as righteousness. So let us not look to ourselves. Let us not try to work harder and try to be better and try to obey the law and think that those things are gonna make us righteous. But God, let us look to Jesus Christ and him alone and that fulfilled promise uh, to be our righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.